Welcome to Ocean Stories, a podcast hosted by me, Lydia Carey, and me, Sarah Hersping. We may not be marine experts or even professional scuba divers, but we are curious about the ocean and ways to protect it. Every week, we chat with conservationists, researchers, business owners, and anyone else with an ocean story to tell. So whether you're a scientist or someone who's simply curious about the big blue, you're in the right spot. We can't save the seas alone, but we can do it together. Good morning. Hi. I cannot believe I'm up right now. I'm How are you running. doing? Um, well, a night owl at 5.30 in the morning isn't doing great, great. But I'm actually, this is training me to be a morning person. I always wanted to be a morning person. I feel like there's a stigma. Morning per- morning people just seem to be more put together. But I, I am a morning person. True. I don't know. I don't think that's true either because... After it gets dark out, I struggle to focus on anything at all. So I feel that during the daylight hours, I have to run around and try and get everything done before my brain just shuts off. My brain fires up at 10 p.m. That's when my cre- I can't be creative unless it's night. And I find that so interesting that every person is so different. Um, but yeah, this is teaching me to become a morning person, to talk in the morning. I'm so excited, though. Um, and I think I'll be doing great. <laughs> it comes with the territory when we are interviewing people in French Polynesia, in the Maldives, in in South Africa. I don't know where people are going to be throughout the length of this podcast, but we are working from multiple time zones and we're making it work, I think. Yeah, I think we're doing good. Again, um, there's worse things than waking up early to interview people to learn new things stories yeah um yeah today i'm excited for this episode i think it's going to be about corals which um i am so interested in coral restoration and weirdly enough um i always wanted to do that which doesn't make any sense because i don't really have any (laughs) background in it um and hopefully that's still gonna happen one day um yeah i don't know what it is but it's my favorite field of research and restoration. So I'm super excited. But also, I also hope that we'll be able to touch a little bit on the land conservation aspect because we haven't had anyone on the podcast yet that did conservation on land as well as on the ocean. So that's going to be exciting. Um, yeah, should I go ahead and give a little background on who our guest is going to be today? Yes. So today we'll be talking to Kate, (laughs) reveal, name reveal, (laughs) and she is a conservation biologist. She's also a wildlife content creator, so she does ocean stuff and land stuff, and she is actually working on coral restoration in the Maldives, so we'll be sure to talk to her about that, but we found her through Instagram. She has a really awesome Instagram inspiring people with conservation content, things like that, climate activism stuff. So yeah, we're pumped up to talk to her. Welcome, Kate. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. We are happy to have you on today. We want to know, where are you right now in the world? Oh, I'm in the Maldives and I wish I had a background to reflect it, but it's, it's, 
dark, like completely dark. The sun sets quite early here about 6pm and it's about half six now. So I'm inside, um, but I am in yeah the North Mane Atoll of the Maldives. Wow, I have never been there. What are you doing there? I work for a company called Reefscapers and we specialize in coral restoration and coral reef research. So I personally manage one of our projects. So we have projects on multiple islands. So I'm based on one of those islands and I manage the coral project here. So it's largely focused on restoration, um, but we also do some research. Um, and in the Maldives, uh, obviously tourism is a big thing. So we also do a lot of engagement with tourists as well. Yeah, something that struck me seeing your content was how alive the ocean is in the videos with the fish and just the different animals. Because when I normally see the Maldives, I see vacation photos of those huts over the ocean where the, there's like nothing in the water. Yeah, we kind of always joke that like people come to the Maldives for like one of two reasons. They're either divers and like ocean people who just snorkel and dive every day or they're like here for the kind of aesthetic and they don't even go in the water they just kind of go to the beach um, but it is actually a very vibrant ecosystem it's I think the seventh largest coral reef in the world it's the kind of Maldivian um, atoll chain and the like coral reefs themselves are super diverse so like 25% of all marine life is dependent on coral reefs so it's but they only cover less than 1% of the ocean floor. So it's like very dense biodiversity. So where you have healthy corals, you do have like a lot of marine life kind of crammed into these, these places. Um, so here where we have the restoration, we have just fish everywhere. One of our sites, we literally have fish like from the ocean floor, like all the way up to the top, just like blue and green and like sparkling. It's, it's pretty cool. Are, are the reefs there flourishing or are they struggling? They're definitely like, struggling. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, the natural reefs, well, all the reefs are definitely struggling. So coral reefs are threatened by a wide variety of things, but primarily uh, climate change. So corals themselves are very vulnerable to temperature. Um, and this is because corals exist in a symbiosis with one algae called zooxanthellae. Um, the algae actually lives inside the tissue of the coral. Um, and algaes are a plant, so they conduct photosynthesis. So they create like sugars for the coral. So they get about 80% of their nutrients from this relationship. Um, and obviously the coral in return provides the algae with a home. Um, what happens with warming temperatures is the algae overproduce oxygen. So it kind of damages their photosynthetic system. So they're kind of the way they conduct photosynthesis. So they become toxic. And um, so the coral push the algae out because they're of the toxicity. But this leaves the corals without their nutrient source. So they can only survive for a short period of time without the algae inside their tissue. And so we are resulted with coral bleaching, um, which is a very like widely used term, but it's seldom actually defined. Um, so the reason this expulsion of the algae is called coral bleaching is because without the algae in the tissue, the skeleton is exposed and coral skeleton is calcium carbonate and it's, it's white. Um, so they just become completely white. Um, and they can survive like this for a short period, but with prolonged periods of warming, 
uh, the corals end up just just dying. So that's why corals are particularly vulnerable to climate change. Corals are just really fussy organisms. They like everything to be kind of like just perfect. <laughs> um, they don't have very tolerant. <laughs> they're not very tolerant of like change or um, extreme conditions, and so the kind of climate change is very much an existential threat. And what we've seen in the Maldives in 1998, we had a mass bleaching event, and this was the first like really big mass bleaching event. And they estimated that 70 to 90% of the coral reefs, particularly the shallow reefs, were bleached and died. So this was a huge, huge blow. But they can recover, and they did recover up to about 70% pre-bleaching levels by 2015. But then in 2016, basically the same thing happened again. So they lost another 90%. Um, so they're in kind of recovering bleaching. a bit now. In a mass bleaching moment, is there a social element? What I mean is, do they sort of look at each other and they're like, we're all going to do this right now? We're all perturbed by this environment? We're all going to release the algae? Or is it just that in certain years, it just ends up really bad for all of them? Yeah, it's more the latter. In certain years, it just kind of ends up being bad. And these are typically the El Nino years. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the El Nino is a like warm phase of the kind of planet's natural climate cycles. We have a kind of, the weather's always changing and there's a kind of weather pattern. It's related to kind of currents in the ocean. Um, I'm not an expert on the uh, <laughs> oceanography and these things, but essentially... There's a seven-year cycle called the ENSO, and this is regulated by currents um, within the ocean. So it's kind of how the oceans regulate the weather, the global climate. Um, and within the ENSO, you have the warm and the cold period. So the warm period is called El Nino, the cold period is La Nina. And with climate change, what we're seeing is longer and warmer like El Ninos. So the already warm period is lasting longer and it's warmer than it used to be. And so when that happens, all the corals kind of have a similar reaction. And Australia recently just declared an El Nino is starting. And so we're expecting to see more bleaching in the coming year. Um, but sort of since 2016 in the Maldives, there's been sort of little bits of bleaching every year. But 2024 is predicted to be another bad year. Um, I don't think I explained <laughs> that very well, but... Um, we don't really need no, to worry actually, too much about <laughs> how the ENSO works, just that climate change is basically exacerbating it. I'm happy to know about it because I always hear El Nino, but I never heard of La Nina, and I actually didn't know that's how it worked, so I'm happy to uh, hear that explanation of it. You definitely have a wealth of knowledge in, in this area, but we want to know more about you and your life what first connected you to the ocean and how did it lead you to where you are today? Big question. but <laughs> It's a really interesting question for me because <laughs> I really shouldn't admit to this, but I don't really see myself as a marine biologist. Um, like I always refer to myself as a conservation biologist. Like right now I'm working as a marine biologist, but that's kind of just a phase of my career. Um, but I, I just love wildlife. I grew up just obsessed with wildlife, you know, watching David Attenborough documentaries, Steve Irwin documentaries, and all I wanted to do was like be around wildlife all the time. Like The Lion King was my favorite film as a kid. And apparently I used to just like watch it on repeat. Like I would just watch it and then rewind it and just watch it again. Um, and 
So I just always wanted to like travel and see different animals because I'm from the UK originally. So we have something called wildlife. I'm not going to bash it too much, but you know, we don't have coral reefs in the UK. So I like just wanted to, to do that. And I learned to dive when I was 17 um, and I loved it. I was just like, this is so cool. Um, I thought it was going to be kind of scary and it just wasn't. It was so easy. It was so fun. Um, and I always loved swimming. Like I was such a water baby as a kid. I think as I then like pat, like pursued conservation and wildlife conservation as a career, um, it kind of made sense to me to do a bit of ocean stuff. Um, so I ended up doing a master's in conservation biology at the University of Cape Town, which was the most amazing experience. And obviously Cape Town is a city on the coast. So I'd go diving quite a lot on the weekends. Um, and I just loved it. And I... When I left that course, I just wanted to do a bit more oceany stuff um, as well as terrestrial stuff because up until that point, all of my experience had been terrestrial. So I really wanted to come to the tropics. I was really interested in coral reefs specifically because it's such a diverse ecosystem. Um, and I'm really interested in like rewilding and restoring ecosystems. I think it's such a key pillar of conservation. So that was coral reef restoration just seemed like an obvious. I can't tell you how many jobs I was rejected from. It was it was daily you know and the one really? I ended up getting was coral restoration in the Maldives like what well, could be worse <laughs> yeah exactly like all that rejection definitely worked out in my favor in the end but I just thought that was hilarious because I think of all the jobs I applied for this was probably the most kind of glamorous and the most like competitive I find it really annoying when people said don't worry to me but honestly <laughs> like the right job will find you uh, or the quote, rejection is protection, or rejection is redirection. I love that quote, oh, yeah. and that reminds me of what, what you're saying. All those rejections, in the end, redirected you to where you are now. I don't know, it's nice. You said that you were not always working as a marine biologist. So can you explain a little bit more about your work on land? I think that's really interesting um, and something we haven't heard about a lot yet. So what animals did you work with on land or what did that Yeah, my, a few different projects. Um, my kind of like proper start like professionally into conservation was actually in South Africa. Um, and this was... Well, technically, I was working with hyenas, I guess, because I was there, um, like, volunteering work, and we were working on a reserve, and we were helping a PhD student who was studying scavengers. But on that trip, even though we were supposed to be working on scavengers, um, we ended up learning a lot about rhino conservation, because the reserve we were on, um, the owners were very, very passionate about rhino conservation, particularly because uh, rhinos are like a, there's well there's five species and they're all endangered to some extent but the causes of their decline are very much like human based um so they're victims to like heavy poaching and, and trafficking and that's it's such a preventable problem like it's purely based on like economics and people just killing rhinos just for you know what i would argue is, is a very poor reason for their horns and so or for their skin Sorry. Uh, yeah, it's for their question. horns. And, no, um, yeah, it's for their horns. So their horns are made of keratin, which is actually just compacted hair. Um, but in certain places, it's 
perceived to have a high medical value. Um, so there's no kind of scientific, um, really like using the kind of Western definition of scientific um, like basis for that. There's no evidence, um, like medical evidence, peer-reviewed evidence that there's any medical properties in uh, rhino horn. Um, and if there are, there would also be those properties in our hair or in our fingernails. Um, but a lot of people have very strong beliefs that, that there are, and these beliefs predate Christianity. So they're, they're very like wow. strong held heavy um, cultural beliefs. beliefs that, yeah, exactly. So you're not necessarily going to change people's minds. Um, and so it drives a huge demand where the rhino horn can go for just huge amounts of money. Um, they say like, I'm not sure if this is still true this year, but definitely a few years ago, gram for gram, it was worth more than gold. Um, and it's part of an industry wow. that is bigger than like the international arms, like illegal arms trade. So it's, it's insane, like the scale of it. Um, and I think for a lot of people, like European people, it's very out of sight, out of mind, but um, it's a huge problem. And so... I got really passionate about that on this trip because I just thought this was just terrible. So I did a bit more work with, with rhinos and that's definitely something I'd like to go back to in the future. Um, what else have I done? I did my thesis on sharks, actually. My master's thesis was working with sharks in Cape Town. Um, so that was quite cool. Um, so a few different things. Um, and I like that. Like I definitely don't want to just do one thing. Um, I feel like I... I did my master's hoping, um, I don't know if either of you can like relate to this at some point in your careers, but kind of did my master's hoping it would narrow my focus and I would be like, okay, this, this is what I'm really interested in. But it did the complete opposite. I just I loved everything. <laughs> and I was like, I want to do everything. And I still have this problem now when I'm looking at different things and I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds cool. I should do that. And then I read the next one and I'm like, oh no, that sounds really cool. And I kind of just want to do a little bit of everything. And so I try not to like pigeonhole myself too much. There's just so many great opportunities out there, but it is amazing that you have a master's that is broad enough to do all those things. So would you recommend studying something like that instead of narrowing yourself down? Yeah, I get this question um, on Instagram a lot. And I think um, particularly from people who want to do marine biology and they're like, should I study marine biology or should I study biology or zoology or ecology? And I think if you know that you want to do marine stuff and you kind of only want to do marine stuff, and there are a lot of people like that, um, then I think do marine biology. The problem with studying biology, zoology or ecology is they tend to be too terrestrial heavy um, and they don't give marine stuff enough of like enough airtime <laughs> that I think that they should like in my master's for example we had a whole module called marine conservation and um, we had 16 modules so it was one of 16 and the first thing <laughs> the lecturer said to us was imagine if they gave you two weeks to do terrestrial conservation what would you expect to learn in that module and we were all like oh my gosh because that's like mountains and forests and deserts like what do you mean and then he was like yeah but the ocean's the same like, there are so many different ecosystems there are so many different oceans the oceans span like the whole kind of latitude like you have like 
polar and tropical and temperate oceans, and then you have oceans on the other side of the world. You know, there's just so much you can do. So what are we supposed to cover in one module? And obviously the other modules that were more broad did incorporate marine examples, but if you really love marine stuff and you know that that's what you want to do, then I think you're going to get a much more detailed experience if you do a marine biology degree. But if you're not sure, then I would not do a marine biology degree as an undergrad. I would do ecology or zoology or biology, and then you can always specialise later with the work you do or if you go into further education. So you said you did your master thesis about sharks in Cape Town, is that correct? Yeah, kind of. So I, I that is what I said, yeah. My thesis was actually looking at water users' perceptions to shark risk. So it was kind of a social science project, actually, which is not something Very I had done before. A lot of people get into like conservation or marine biology or whatever because they love animals and they don't want to engage with people. But actually, um, another quote from one of my professors was like, conservation is, is changing human behavior. Like, that's what it is. And you deal more with people <laughs> than you do with anything else. So yeah, my thesis looked at water users' perceptions to shark risk in two areas of South Africa, so Cape Town and Durban. Because at the time, um, Cape Town had a non-lethal shark control program, whereas Durban had a lethal shark control program. And this is to mitigate the risk of people being bitten by sharks. Uh, because I did in Cape not Town, even know that a... existed. Can you explain yeah. a little bit more what those shark programs look like? Yeah. So in Cape Town, they have a lot of great white sharks most of the time. And so they have a shark spotter program. And essentially, Cape Town lends itself so well to this because the mountains kind of like drop into the sea. So you have a lot of elevated land very close to the coast. And so what you will have is the shark spotter will sit at like a high vantage point and look out over the beach, over the bays, and like look for sharks. And if they see a large shark approaching a beach, they will cool down and that beach will sound an alarm and then they also have a flag system so if there's a shark approaching they put up a white flag and they sound an alarm and the beach is cleared you have to get out of the water if you hear the alarm then they have um, three other colors so they have a green flag which means that the conditions are good and there's no sharks in the area so when you come to the beach you can check the flag and if you see there's a green flag you're good to go you know there's a shark spotter on duty but they've determined that there's nothing around and the conditions are really good They also have a black flag, and this means that they haven't spotted a shark, but the conditions are not ideal. So this might mean that there's like a lot of glare on the water, so they can't see as well, or it's like the weather's really bad. Then they have a red flag, and this is like high shark risk. So it could be that they've seen a shark in the last hour, but it's it appears to have gone. Um, but it could also be something like there's a whale carcass in the area, which is going to induce like more shark activity, for example. So anyone turning up to the beach can assess red? the situation. Yeah, like, people, do people do swim still when it's just red. go in. Yeah, people do go when it's red. Um, I've been in when it's red before um, because it it I think it's it can mean like so many different things. Um, but you know that there's someone watching. And also, if it's red, you know, they, they're going to be so vigilant to check 
but <laughs> no sharks come. But majority of the time it's black, I'm not gonna lie. Like I, it's very rare to have a green flag where the conditions are really good. Um, I don't know if like you guys or any listeners have been to Cape Town, but um, the weather is interesting. Like the winds are really strong. You can get like every season in a day. Um, the water visibility doesn't tend to be that good. So it's almost always black. Um, but it can be green, it can be red. Um, so that's Cape Town. In Durban, they don't have as many great whites, but they do have um, tigers and bulls um, and like oceanic white tips that have been known to bite people in the past. And there they have a lethal program. So they have uh, shark nets and drum lines. Now I might be out of date now because I have heard that they are descaling this and have removed a lot of this so I'm I might be completely bad mouthing them they might not have this anymore but at the time they really did um I need to like update this actually but shark nets are just gill nets they're designed to catch sharks um drum lines are like baited boys with hooks so these are um also designed to catch sharks um, but this just doesn't really work. The gill nets don't extend throughout the whole water column, so sharks can just swim like over them or around them. And like a third of the sharks that they catch are actually caught on the beach side, so they're like caught on their way back out to sea. So mm. that's not helping anyone. Um, and the argument that a lot of the like places that have these nets have is that if we didn't have them, people wouldn't feel safe to go in the water and the economy would suffer. So what my project aimed to do was to interview these people, the people who actually like surf a lot and swim a lot and both tourists and locals and be like, would you go in the water? We basically found that people don't care. <laughs> um, people don't agree with like lethal management. They don't want sharks to be killed. Like it was a lot of opposition to that. People are really in favor of non-lethal management. Like they would prefer to have non-lethal management than nothing, but they really don't want lethal management. Um, and then uh, the like, if the surf is really good, they're gonna go in the water regardless of the shark risk. So <laughs> the fact that the risk That's exists doesn't, yeah, <laughs> doesn't like massively deter people from going. So what's your opinion on it? Do you think? I mean, the net, the net seem to not be a good idea for all the reasons you just said. But do you think it's good to have spotters? Um, do you think that actually helps with preventing attacks? Yeah, I do. I, I mean, I'm personally like really against lethal shark control because I think um, it's their space and we are just using it. And so it doesn't make sense for us to kill them just so we can swim. Um, and it has such like potential to have such cascading effects on the ecosystem. So I'm really against that. I think the spotters program is fantastic. It is effective. I think it's great for awareness. However, it's not something that we can just like roll out everywhere because as I mentioned, Cape Town just is perfect for this because you have the elevation. Like in an area where you don't have mountains on the coast, which is the case in Durban, it would be a lot harder. You could put people on like buildings and stuff. And there's obviously more increased use of drones for this kind of stuff. Um, but It's, it's a great program, but it's not necessarily naturally like something you can just replicate everywhere. 
How common are the lethal control systems? Are they prevalent around the world? Um, they're in a few different places. So we've got Australia, America, um, South Africa, and then like a few other kind of Pacific islands, um, like the Reunion Island have them, um, a few other places. But they are generally, I think, being phased out, like South Africa's phasing them out, I think Australia's phasing them out. Um, I think in America they're in Florida, because um, there, is, there is opposition, like people don't want them. So it's not, and because technologies, like non-lethal technologies like the drones and stuff are being developed to the point where you can kind of swap, swap the lethal for the non-lethal. Um, but they are, they are quite prevalent. Um, but I just personally think there's no need for them. Sarah, what type of system do they use where you are? There's no system here. But I, just, I don't think there's an actual threat because there's barely ever any attacks. I'm in Southern California or in California generally. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's any shark prevention programs here. Maybe you know more than me. Um, but yeah, I think uh, the risk is... No, I don't. It could well be that there isn't anything because in um, like Port Elizabeth, which is kind of in between Durban and Cape Town, they have nothing. Um, they do have like world championship surf tournaments there sometimes. And in those cases, they have like helicopters and stuff checking. But just on a normal day, they don't have anything. Well, we always get sidetracked with sharks here. I feel like we have a theme going on. <laughs> but maybe let's go back. Let's go back to the corals. I like to learn more about the corals. So are you doing coral restoration right now or what does your product, uh, project look like? Yes, we primarily do coral restoration. Um, and we do coral restoration through propagation. So essentially the method that we use is we have metal frames. Um, so they're like structure, 3D structures made from metal and then they've been dipped in resin and sand. So they've got like a natural sand layer um, coating the metal uh, and then we attach pieces of coral so it's very much when you propagate a plant in your house and you like clip a little bit and pop it in some water kind of the same thing so we take like small pieces of coral about the size of your like middle finger maybe slightly bigger um, and we attach them onto the frame and then they will just grow on the frame so the frames are permanent structures so we do call these artificial reefs um, but the 3D nature of the structure helps create like a complex habitat as well for the fish. Um, and then if you have lots of frames together, obviously it creates a reef which will function exactly the same as a natural reef. Um, you can also use the frames to like enhance the, the natural reef. So you can kind of like um, have frames on like a degraded reef. So you're kind of increasing the, the coral cover. Um, and yeah, essentially the corals just grow and it attracts fish and other marine life and creates a little ecosystem. You said that there will probably be a new El Nino approaching. Is there any way um, that you can protect the corals that you are uh, restoring from that? Um, so we have a few like mitigation strategies. Um, and this is, again, another kind of benefit to the frames is that we can move them. Um, so one strategy we use is like depth. So obviously temperature varies at different depths. So we can plant frames in slightly deeper water um, where it will be slightly cooler. 
So hopefully they will not experience the effects of the El Nino as much as the, the shallower reefs. Um, we also can use shade. Um, so <laughs> interesting, what we were kind of mentioning earlier about the Maldives, one of the very famous things about the Maldives is the overwater villas, like the little huts on the water. And in the past where we've had bleaching, I have put frames like under there and in the shade they do, the water is cooler. Um, but this is very small scale. Like if we're seeing mass scale bleaching, then we would need a more kind of permanent solution. So we try to outplant them in areas that they should do better. So areas where they've got like currents, access to nutrients, and they're at a deeper depth. So they've got a better temperature zone. Um, you can, there is a lot of work going into kind of breeding more temperature resistant corals. So like working in a lab to reproduce corals and then expose them to high temperatures and try and build up resistance and then breed with those corals. But corals take quite a long time to sexually reproduce. Time is not something we have a huge amount of, unfortunately, when it comes to corals. So it's not necessarily uh, the only solution. It can kind of be used in in combination with, with other solutions. Um, we also do hope, though, that the corals that we're propagating are naturally slightly more resistant because we're obviously propagating from corals that we have. So the small pieces that we take to put on the frames, we collect from from different areas. So sometimes fish just break them, so we just pick them up, um, but sometimes we'll, we'll take small pieces ourselves. And these corals like are already here. So they've either survived a bleaching event or they've kind of grown in these slightly warmer waters. So we kind of do hope that we are already propagating from slightly more resistant uh, colonies, but um, it is definitely a, an existential threat and something that we are very worried about coral reefs under various models are not looking, they're one of the most vulnerable ecosystems to climate change. And there's a lot of estimates, the kind of most optimistic estimate is that 70% will die under 1.5 degrees of warming, but a more realistic estimate is like 90 to 99%. Um, and that's, we're currently projected of 1.7. Um, we've already warmed the planet 1.2 degrees above pre-industrial levels. So if we hit 1.5, it's very likely that we will just lose coral reefs because if we do lose 90 to 99%, there's not gonna be enough genetic diversity to repopulate. So it's very much an existential threat and coral restoration is only half the picture. You know, we need drastic and like quick action on climate change. We need to stamp out the causes of coral decline, which is global warming, which is a result of greenhouse gas emissions. And without that, we, you know, we can restore as much as we want, but we will still eventually lose the coral reefs. So we need both. We need coral restoration to increase resilience, but we need to prevent global warming above 1.5 degrees. What would an ocean without coral reefs look like? What would be the biggest impacts for wildlife in the ocean? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, it would be huge. Um, yeah, as I think I mentioned, 25% of all marine life depend on coral reefs. So that's a lot of wildlife that could potentially be lost alongside them or would have to adapt very quickly. Um, and this includes a lot of the, the species that human beings are dependent on for food. So like tuna, grouper, um, a lot of our food stocks come from coral reefs. Um, 
countries that are also dependent on them, like the Maldives for tourism, it would be a huge loss. Um, they also provide like island protection to flooding. So again, it can exacerbate the impacts of sea level rise um, for countries like the Maldives. Um, the Maldives, one of the most low lying countries in the world. Um, you would have like cascading knock on effects across multiple ecosystems because um, yeah, if you lost some of the wildlife dependent on coral reefs, that's gonna just like knock into several, several ecosystems. Um, something really interesting about the oceans that I'm sure other people have or will say on this podcast is like a healthy ocean and an unhealthy ocean look exactly the same from the surface. Like when you stand on land and you look out at the sea, it looks the same whether it's completely dead or completely vibrant underneath. And so sometimes I think that's why we have this kind of out of sight, out of mind mentality towards the oceans and we don't realize how much life on land is also dependent on healthy oceans. Um, not only do the oceans like regulate our weather, but they provide food for like a lot of people. A lot of ecosystems are like directly linked to the oceans. So it would be not just like marine ecosystems that would suffer, it would be terrestrial ecosystems as well and our own species. It's some heavy stuff to be sure. Yeah, I'm sorry, <laughs> got a bit sad. No, well, it just means that the work you're doing is actually really incredible and super important and super relevant to the time that we're in. I really love that you mentioned the intersections between the work you're doing and conservation, sustainability, and people and humans. This is something I love to talk about, so I love that you touched on it. It is often forgotten, I think, in this community how important it is to consider people's everyday lives and just the daily lives of regular people that aren't in fascinated studying the world of climate change conservation and sort of doing environmental education of how can we get more people involved in this sort of thing. Is there anything that someone who is not a diver, is not, does not live by the ocean, has never been to the Maldives, is there anything that that person could do today, maybe, to try and help with this issue? Oh, it's such a good question. Um, and like, <laughs> it's a question people like ask a lot. And I feel like I need to like, just memorize an answer because <laughs> I, I, there's so many things that people can do, but I guess it's, I don't know, I guess it's something that we as like people in the industry kind of think about a lot. And I sometimes forget that like other people don't think about this stuff every day. <laughs> um, totally. And like uh, most people are not having like an existential crisis about climate change on the daily, like that's not normal. And so it's kind of your mind automatically goes to like the big things, but there are so many small things that people can do that as people like you say, who don't dive, don't live in like a metropolitan city in a landlocked country. Um, and you might feel really disconnected to the oceans, but you're not. And um, a lot of the, the like smaller things people can do, obviously, um, like reduce your reliance on single-use plastics. Um, and if you are using plastics, making sure you're disposing of them correctly. Other products that can be like harmful for the ocean. So um, 
certain like chemicals if you're like using them in your garden and that comes into runoff and that runs off into the oceans that can be like damaging so making sure you're buying kind of more like ocean friendly products um, and that can be anything from yeah like the type of um, gosh I'm really not a gardener but like weed killer that you use or like the shampoo that you use I would say any kind of water-based products in particular um, and like thinking about water conservation in general as well I mean anything related to climate change and reducing greenhouse gas emissions <laughs> is like the key um, so whether that's on a personal level you know all the kind of classic things that you see on like those adverts that are like like take public transport like ride your bike and you see those people like in their like picket fence neighborhoods on those like tv adverts but reducing your own carbon footprint but i would say when it comes to these big issues like pollution and climate change individuals are not the solution nor are we the problem um the solution and the problem comes from large corporations like large multi-million dollar corporations and global governments and they are also going to be the solution it's not on us this is kind of gaslighting narrative from the press and from these kind of corporations that we as an individual like if you don't eat steak today and instead you eat a mushroom like you're gonna solve climate change and it's like those changes are great but no climate change is going to be solved by a massive descaling of fossil fuels and investment in renewable energy and like i can't do that like <laughs> i have no control over where my country is getting its energy from the most powerful thing i think a lot of us can do is vote like in the elections which is sounds like such a small thing but i honestly think it's one of the most powerful things we can do is vote for politicians that prioritize the environment but also vote with your money like support companies that are doing the right thing that are on the right side of history don't support companies that are some of the bigger polluters um and some sometimes these companies are unavoidable and equally to kind of have the choice not to support them is a privilege that not everyone can afford and I completely recognize that but if you are in a position where you can choose a more sustainable alternative over like Amazon for example do it um like stop giving Jeff Bezos your money like <laughs> give it to someone else and it's I think like as individuals the biggest thing we can do is kind of collectively act um, because the power of collective action is huge, but the power of like one individual, not to diminish it, but it's not going to, we need, it's not going to cure the climate crisis. The climate crisis needs to be cured by the people creating it, which are world leaders and like billion dollar companies. Wow. Drop the mic, Kate. Just drop the <laughs> mic. Yeah. Thank you for that beautiful, I mean, couldn't have said, couldn't have wrapped up the entire climate crisis and what we can do about it in a better or more nuanced way. Like, I'm, I'm clapping internally. This is something I could talk about for hours. And it's something that actually really resonated with me, particularly when I lived in Cape Town, because it's a bit of a tangent, but... Um, Cape Town very like famously went through a pretty severe drought in like 2017 2018 and I moved there in 2019 so we're kind of coming out of this drought but um, was still kind of a scarcity of water and they had this concept in 2018 of day zero and day zero was the day the taps are running dry and they kind of were like we are we are heading towards day zero where like you're going to turn your tap on and nothing's going to come out and that was very much like a real thing that people like everyone was gearing up for scary. so people were concerned yeah so scary i can't even imagine it so people were like on 
massive water conservation mode, like all around the city, everything you could do to conserve water, you were doing. And obviously this was coming from the kind of government, but it was also coming from individual people. So it became completely normalized to shower. So you'd have your shower running and then you would be standing in like buckets. So you'd have buckets everywhere. So all your shower water was being collected in these buckets. And then you would use that water to like power your house. So you would use that water to like flush the toilet or to like water your plants. And you would like, so you're having two uses out of that water. And at um, the university, they had these things on the back of the toilet door. And it was like a, like a wheel with a little arrow. Um, and it was split into six. And it basically was like, you, every time you go in, you move the arrow like down one. And once it gets to six, then that's when you flush the toilet. Unless... It's a situation that needs to be flushed on the first go, which is fine. But like, if it's just just number one, you don't need to be flushing it. So it was like, they were basically saying like, once it gets round, then that person flushes it and pushes it back to one. And so there was all this stuff everywhere. And it worked. That's so they crazy. Never, people, they people never got California. to day zero. It's hard to imagine people that. in California actually do that. There's the saying here. Or some people do it. If it's pee, let it be. And when I first got here, I was like, why is no one flushing the freaking toilet? What's going on? And then I was like, oh, we are in a desert down here. So we should probably be more careful about our water. Um, so, yeah, that's... Yeah, that's when I went back to England. That works. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was really successful. So they never hit day zero. They also had, and I think this is wild, but kind of genius... Um, they had this like website and I think this was set up by the local government but I'm not 100% sure and you could like log onto your street and it would show you how much water like the different houses in your street were using so it was exposing people (laughs) it was exposing (laughs) so it was like peer pressure and like shame and it was like you don't want to be the worst but it also it made people do it because I think obviously people had the motivation that they didn't want their taps to run dry. But it's very easy to slip into a mentality of like, oh, but I don't have to like everyone else will. And like, it doesn't matter if I have a 20 minute shower today because I've had a really bad day and like we're all going to, you know, we're all doing our bit. But it's like, no, they're going to see if you do that. So that is crazy was, like, social accountability. It's crazy, isn't it? I thought it was like kind of insane, like it's so unhinged, but it's also really clever. And I think this, like then coming into Cape Town, like they knew when I arrived that they had kind of survived day zero and that we weren't really approaching for day zero anymore, but we were still conserving water and all these habits people had were still ongoing. So like we were all still showering with buckets and stuff like that. And the power of collective action was so like obvious because the fact that everyone had tried to conserve their own water use meant that they managed to avoid day zero and they managed to have the water available until it rained again eventually so they kind of rationed it so well and I think that's why people in in Cape Town are very passionate about the climate crisis because they've seen that collective action works and so if we do do kind of divest from fossil fuels and we all kind of work together it can avoid a crisis and I think you see that in a lot of a lot of examples in all of Africa and across Asia as well where they've been dealing with this stuff for a long time you know the environmental threats like this are not new to to Africa in the way that they kind of are to a lot of like 
cushy European countries and like I mean, the UK, we're at a really temperate latitude. We don't have earthquakes. We don't have anything like that. We're, you know, we get a lot of rain and we complain about it, but we really don't have like a dangerous climate. <laughs> um, whereas other parts of the world have been dealing with this stuff for a long time. And so they have a much more, like a much kind of uh, uh, like intrinsic understanding of the climate crisis and therefore kind of more powerful message when it comes to these things. So I found that really interesting living there. I feel like I learned a lot from that perspective. We all have a lot of things we can think about in our daily lives. Um, you just gave us so many great examples to think about. Um, but before we say goodbye, we want to ask you our favorite question of each interview, which is, what was your favorite memory in the ocean or your favorite wildlife? Well, actually for you, maybe what was your favorite wildlife encounter? Because it doesn't necessarily have to be, it has to be in the ocean as you worked on land and in the ocean. Oh my gosh, that is such a hard question. Okay, I have a, <laughs> I have a few, let me try and pick one. I would say in the ocean, one of my favorite animals to see is um, eagle rays. And once we have a lot of eagle rays around the island, but they're very shy. They're quite skittish. Um, but one time we had one and it just didn't care that, that we were there. There was two of us there and it was just swimming and feeding and like stopping and just like chilling. And it did not care that we, we stayed there. And that's really, really rare. And so we were with it for like 25 minutes and it just was coming really close to us. It was just chilling. Um, so that was really, really special. Well, we'll make sure to share some photos of um, all the work you do and hopefully a couple of those animals that you just mentioned. Thank you so much for joining us today. That was amazing. I feel like we learned so many things. We went from land back to the ocean, to sharks and to climate change at the end. Um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. Yeah, we definitely went like, I don't even know where, but it was really lovely to chat to you guys. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Ocean Stories. If you'd like to follow along on Instagram, you can find us at oceanstories underscore podcast for updates and behind the scenes. We'll also be sharing our ocean adventures on YouTube at Ocean Stories Podcast. If you like this episode, please show your support by leaving a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Join us next Tuesday for more Ocean Stories.